0: grace, mercy, and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The annual picture posting frenzy has begun. As schools across the United States started to go back into session last week, followed by the rest of the schools going into session, this week, social media is overwhelmed with the first day of school pictures. And when you look at those first day of school pictures, you can tell a little bit about what's happening behind them. Some are hurried, and you can tell that as everybody is in the frenzy of getting out the door to catch the bus or make sure that they get to school on time, all of a sudden somebody says, oh wait, we need a picture, stop! And one is taken, and then they move on. And then there's the other kind of pictures. Those that you can tell have been thought about for weeks. The outfits have been carefully chosen. The backdrop was composed, and there's beautifully handmade signs that say the child's name, what their hobbies are, their future aspirations, what size shoe they wear, and the list goes on and on. But it doesn't matter whether it's a picture snapped in the frenzy of the moment or carefully composed weeks in advance each are trying to do the same thing. Capture the moment that begins a new school year, a new step on the journey toward adulthood, another step on the path towards the American dream of academic success that opens the door to future opportunity. As I was looking at all of those pictures that showed up last week, I couldn't help but reflect on all of my own first days of school that I've had over the course of my life and reflect that I still have more to come, not just with my children, but with my own as I continue my education. And as I was thinking about those first days of school, it led me to think about the teachers who had impacted me along the way. Mrs. Enderly, who in kindergarten read all kinds of books. She was my grandpa's cousin, my dad's kindergarten teacher. And when we had Henry, bought one of those recordable books in which she recorded Goodnight Moon so she could read to yet a third generation of her cousins. Or when I got to junior high, Ms. Baranski, a tiny little lady who stood in front of the class and would say, Ladies and gentlemen, it is simple, common courtesy. And then you'd get whatever rebuke she had in store even to this day, it runs through my mind. It's simple, common courtesy to do whatever the course may be. And there were band directors like Mr. Starks who inspired a love of music and all of the other teachers along the way. The teachers who take that first day of school and turn it into an opportunity to spend a year teaching you to love and what they have studied and to model to you the type of person they want you to become. So that decades later, you still remember the words of the books they read in kindergarten, or that you remember its common courtesy to do certain things, or you continue to share the passion they instilled along the way. These marks of a good teacher shape all of us, and we all carry the lessons from some teachers we've met along the way. And when we consider those teachers, we often think about them in the formal sense of the schooling we received, but it's also the mentors we've had who poured into us and shaped us as we grew. And in our epistle lesson for today, the author to the letter to the Hebrews is asking you to consider those teachers in your life who have instructed you in the word of God. He wants you to remember those teachers who have taught you God's word, and he writes this, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He says this because he's reminding us in a different way to keep the fourth commandment. Honor your father and mother, the author is saying. And since catechism begins next week, we are supposed to ask, what does this mean? This means we should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents or authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. We spend time studying this this commandment, reflecting on what it means, and my favorite question to ask when studying the fourth commandment is this, when do you get to stop keeping the fourth commandment? In catechism class, the natural answer is, well, when mom and dad die. Well, yes, they will die at some point, but this is not when you get to stop keeping the commandment. You don't get to say at their funeral, oh, good, they're done, the fourth commandment's complete. No, we keep the fourth commandment all the days of our lives, not the lives of our parents. Because the fourth commandment does what the author of the letter of the Hebrews is teaching us today. It's upholding the values and lessons that our parents teach us over the course of a lifetime. And so when the author to the letter to Hebrews encourages us to remember our leaders, those who spoke to us the word of God, he doesn't point out the things that they've taught you in the classroom. But he says that we should consider the whole of their life and the outcome of their way of life, and then imitate the faith that let them lead that life. If you're wondering what you should look at for when imitating the life of those that have lived a life of faith, he gives you a list of examples to start from. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those in prison and those who are mistreated. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. These are the life lessons that the author in particular wants you to take from those who speak to you the word of God living in their daily life. He's pointing out that those who are faithful do not live as the world lives, but live instead in the way that God has commanded them to live. They live in sacrifice for others. They seek out those they do not know and welcome them into the house of God. The people of God do not flee from those who are broken by sin, but instead go go to see them and be with them, and continue to be present with them to show them how much God loves them in spite of their brokenness. They protect the defenseless. They take their marriage vows seriously and encourage others to do the same. They're not lovers of money, and above all, they are content with what they have, and they rejoice in knowing that God has said, "'I will never leave you or forsake you.'" And as a result, they confidently confess The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. For what can man do to me? That's an incredibly different view of the world than the one that a non-Christian would have. Because if we know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can take a different view of this world because we don't need to worry and fret about what is to come. And instead, we are able to rejoice in what God has given us this day and ask how he has given it to us so we can care for one another. We can live in confidence knowing that when we give from what we have in this world, we've not given up anything of lasting significance because the things of this world are temporary. And so we look forward to what God has in store for his people and look forward to the day of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. To do this, however, the Christian has to learn to live in a different way. The Christian has to learn to be content and humble in this life. To be content and humble means that you rely not on yourself, but on God to provide for your life and, and to give meaning to all that you do. This is what King David is speaking about in our lesson from Proverbs today when he says, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. With this Proverbs, he's contrasting the way of the world with the way of God. And so he relies on the desire of kings who have the temptation to believe themselves to be important, wise, indispensable people, see themselves as saviors of those they rule he uses their philosophy in order to show the foolishness of the world. Because the king will ultimately learn that the more he desires to be rich or wise or indispensable to the world, the the less satisfied he will be. Because all he will see is that there is more wealth, more wisdom, more things to do than he could ever have or complete on his own. He will never be happy until he is content with what God has given. The second lesson to learn is the one of humility. It's a great temptation to think that we are more necessary to the world than what we are. Those who are not content are also rarely humble because they convince themselves that they're too important not to matter. But here King David reminds us again that our pride often leads to our shame. For when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, we are put into our place by those who are superior to us, and so it is with God. When we devote our lives to the pursuit of money or fame or power, or whatever we would desire, we soon take pride in what I have accomplished. Forget that all that we have is a gift from God that he has entrusted to our care. Being humble before God is spending your life learning more about who he is and what he has done for his creation. Because the moment you think you've learned all there is to know about God, you've puffed yourself up in pride and simply created the God you want, instead of learning more about the God you have. As we consider this in the context of back to school for this time of year, It's a reminder to us that the purpose of education is to know God and to make him known, to discover God through the world he's created around us. As I said last week during the blessing of the backpacks, it's to see how math reveals how he places order into our world, how language reveals him as a God who speaks, how science shows that it's a God who creates, how physical education shows us how magnificently he's designed our bodies, how music and art show that he desires beauty in the world around us. The more we learn these things, the more humble we become, learning to look to God in amazement for all that he has done. So what does it look like to live a life of contentment and humility? to live a life knowing that God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, and then confidently confess, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's to live a life imitating the faith of those that have come before us, confessing the faith they have given to us. Confessing this faith because we know that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as he did for those who've come before us, he does for us today and promises to keep doing for those who have yet to come. That he will hear your cries of repentance for your pride and he will send his spirit to place praises on your lips that acknowledge his name. He will hear your confession of sins and respond with grace, mercy, forgiveness, life, and salvation so we confess, as our forefathers confessed before us, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. And then we can live as if we believe that confession to be true. Because when we do this, we love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our mind. And in doing that, we also honor the fathers and mothers of our faith, imitating the life they lived before us. Amen. Now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.